just want to be sober with y'all and be straightforward and straight up and say, I know that many of you have walked through dark days the past couple of days. Certainly with the student taking his life, many of you knew him and were friends with him or friends that were friends with. And we felt in RUF that it was important to not just pass over that, but rather stay here and let's see what Jesus has to say to us. And even if you didn't know the student or know anybody that did, last week was a banner week of suckiness just in and around the world. Many of you from the Northeast have friends that are sorrowful because of the shootings in the synagogue in western Pennsylvania. Others of you in and around the Louisville, Kentucky area may have heard the story about two African-American men that were killed in a Kroger. For those of you that follow our political news cycle, you also heard of explosive and bombs being mailed to both politicians and to news leaders. This is the world that we live in. And if none of those things have touched your life in any particular way, we don't have to think very long to just think about your life. Perhaps it's just been a heavy one to think back on the aches and the sorrows of your world. Whether that's a past relationship breaking up, whether that's an internship that's fallen through, a divorce back home from mom and dad, the death of a close friend. All of those things are very real in our world and in our life. I'm reminded of what the Avett brothers, one of my favorite bands, have written when talking about the idea of sadness. Listen to what they write and what they subsequently sing. But I still wake up shaken by dreams. And I hate to say it, but the way it seems is that no one is fine. Take the time to peel a few layers and you will find true sadness. What do you do with that sadness? Many of us don't know. We carry it. We don't know what to do with it. In light of the suicide, for there's some that would feel guilty for that. In light of others, it's just grief. And I would like to suggest to you that our culture doesn't help us out either. Here's what I mean. There's typically two predominant ways that we deal with our sorrows. One is the more conservative traditional route. It's just to bury it, right? It's the Ricky Bobby way that we talked about earlier in the semester. Just push it in, bury it down, and don't it. The stiff upper lip approach. There's the other approach that's a little bit more the idea, of the, the, the idea that's like you are your feelings. There's nothing else out there. No higher cause, no higher good. And the most important thing for you to do is to express them or you can't be a true person. And I would like to suggest to you that the Bible gives us something radically different. Radically different. You see, in the end, our sorrows can leave us with sadness and grief and not knowing what to do with it. But do you know that the Bible gives us something radically different? You see, against the conservative approach, you don't have to hide your bad things in your life. And as well, against the sort of more worldly approach, we being made in the image of God, as we've talked about all semester long, living in a world made by God, are meant to be able to do something and to take our sorrows somewhere. And so therefore, Psalm 13 answers this question for us. 
What do we do with our sorrows? And you know what it's going to tell us? This is going to shock us. We sing them. We sing our sorrows. That's the appropriate response. That's what Psalm 13 is going to tell us. You see, you and I know this. You know what it's like to crank up the radio with a song on the radio and to just belt your heart out. Some of you do it in the shower and you know what it's like. It touches somewhere deep in you because you know that songs get in us in ways that instructive didactic material don't always get. It's why I can ask you if you grew up in the church, I could say, without even thinking about it, right? I could say, sing song X and you likely could recall it. I could probably ask you to sing your alma mater and you could do it because at the end of every football game, it's just embedded in you. But if I were to ask you to recite it without singing it, many of you would have problems. You'd have to go, wait, I need to get the tune first so I know it. Why? Because it's been embedded in you because of song. And that's the way songs work. And God knows that. And so you know what He does for our sorrows? He gives us songs to sing. And they're right there in the Psalms. In fact, the major category of all the psalms is a song of lament. Lamentations. The idea of bringing our complaints before God, not having to bury them, but actually crying out to God with them. Do you know a Bible like that? Do you know a God like that? Why is that so important? Here's why. And then we will jump in. Because if I've said already, that if you don't have a place for sorrow in your Christian paradigm, if you're a Christian, you will not know what to do when when your life is falling apart. You need them. So where are we going to see them? What's the question tonight? How does Psalm 13 tell us about singing our sorrows? Here it is. If we want to sing our sorrows well, we'll see how our text is showing us that we need to learn how to voice three things. Here they are. How to voice our hurts, how to voice our help, and lastly, how to voice our hope. Voicing our hurts, our help, and our hope. We'll take a look at each one of them. Let's do that real quickly here as we take a look. First of all, these first couple of verses where we look at voicing our hurts. Take a look with me. Do you see it there in verse 13, chapter 1? Thir- chapter 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord? How long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Did you catch that? There's a cry here four times. How long? And you know what? That's actually not a question that's looking for a time response. No, no, no. It's not the way that poetry works, you see. Rather, it's an expression of not being able to endure any longer. To endure the circumstances that follow. Did you catch them there? Look at it. Look at the emotions and the feelings that are expressed. Absence. Being forgotten by God. Look at this. Will you forget me forever? The singer, David, the writer is saying, How long will I not sense your presence in my life? How long will it feel like you have abandoned me? Have you ever felt that? Have you buried it? Have you been told in the church somewhere to get over that stuff as if it weren't real to the human experience? Well, the Bible talks about it. And yes, I am quite worked up about it. Because here's why. 
When I meet students that have grown up in a world where this stuff has not been talked about, they don't know how to handle their grief and their sorrows. And so it's so critical that we take a look at it. Look what else is happening here. Look what he says this. How long must I take counsel in my own soul? What's that getting out there in verse 2? Well, have you ever been trapped in your own head? Many of you have for these last several days. Knowing that you're trapped in your own head and you can't get out? The Bible's telling us about that. And it's telling us to sing about it. This is, as what one commentator put it, the turmoil of thought. Some of y'all know what that's like. The psalmist is singing about it right here in the Bible, giving us words to it. In short, this is a profound sense. This voicing our hurts by an abandonment by God. But, that's, but it's not just that, as David says, as we'll see more. You see, here's what I want you to see. There is a surprise here. And it is the false idea. The false idea that if I'm following Jesus, if I'm obeying God, if I just do what He asks me to do, that there won't be any hurt in my life. And what the psalm is telling us is that utterly is not true. That being a Christian does not protect you from living life in the world. Listen, let me zoom out for just a second to tell you a little bit about what the story of the Bible is actually all about. That we live in a world that was made good and beautiful. We, mankind, screwed that up and wrecked it. And we live now in a world where brokenness exists, where sorrow exists, where sadness exists. And yes, Jesus has come. That's what Christians assert to be true. That He has died on a cross to begin the work of putting the world back together. But listen, that, as you well know, but the day is coming. And so right now, we live, as Christian theologians talk about, between the already of Christ's death and the not yet of Christ's crown. We live in an overlap of the ages. And so long as we do, real sorrow exists. And just because you're a Christian does not take you out of the world in that. And some of us think, well, if I just trust God enough, if I just am happy, clappy enough, then I won't have any pain in my life. And Psalm 13 is saying, not so, because David knew God. And here's how else you know. Do you think Jesus knew God? I think He did. He might be a pretty Christian Christian. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. He was a man of sorrows, the Bible tells us. When one of his friends died, you know what Jesus did? He wept. He wept. So even Jesus Himself was not able to shake life under the sun and the brokenness that is in this world. And I think these past couple days have embedded that in us where if you think that the idea of sort of a life well lived as a Christian is that you don't deal with your hurts then you're not going to know what to do when the hurts come your way. You'll deny them or you'll think that God's abandoned you. Listen to what Tim Keller writes. I love this quote. Listen to what he writes. He says, if you don't expect tears, he means expect tears in your life, you'll be crying about two things. You'll be crying about the thing that grieves you and you'll be crying about the fact that you're grieved. Keller is saying, if you don't understand that part of what it means to live as a human being, but especially as a Christian in this world, your sorrows will multiply. 
And here's what I want you to see. Maturity means that you are able to be honest with God about your specific sorrows. Like, can we just pause for a second? Do you think that would be a comfort to you? That you could just run to God with all the crap in your life and you don't have to tidy it up. And you can just cry out to Him. And you can be angry at death like He was. And you can say, Lord, college students aren't supposed to take their lives. What are you going to do about that? Moms and dads aren't supposed to divorce. What are you going to do about that? You think God's big enough to handle your screams? Some of you need to see that. Some of you need Psalm 13 to hear a place where we voice our hurts. Secondly, we voice, we voice as well. If we're going to learn how to sing our sorrows, we're going to have to learn how to voice our need, our need for help. Let's move down the psalm, the verses 3 and 4. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I have shaken. David now, the writer of this psalm, is now making an appeal, a plea to God to consider his life. That word consider there in the Hebrew is like, notice, take heart, look and see. Those would be synonyms. Do you do that with God? Are you able to cry out in the midst of it and to say, I am a needy man, I am a needy woman, I do not have the resources to do life in this world in this moment. Will you please look on and will you answer me? You see, what this psalm is telling us is that it gets at our ability to name our need. To name that we're a limited man and a limited, human, a limited woman. To say, I'm not... There are things in this world that I cannot make sense of. Only you can, O Lord. And will you please consider my life? Will you consider the sorrows? And will you please get involved? Will you please enter into this? And this is all stuff that we sing. Look at this. I love this idea of the enemy here. It says, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. We don't know exactly what David was writing about when he said this. But it's not less than enemy in the general sense as well. So it may have been a military enemy. We don't really know. But the point is, is this. You have an enemy. If you are in Jesus, you have an enemy. Ephesians chapter 6 says that our battle, which implies what? An enemy. Is not against flesh and blood. The book... The other, the other books of the New Testament talk about that we have an enemy, Satan himself, who seeks to destroy you. And the idea here is that when that sobers you, you recognize, I don't have what it takes. And what I want you to see is, is that part of what it means to lament is to name that. Is to name that sorrow. And to say, I need your help, O Lord. Will you please, will you please Come. And that gets us right at what Paul was talking about when he said in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, for when I am weak, that's where strength comes. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. You see, you can be a mess. You can be a mess before Jesus because He already knows you are. And He made you a limited human being that doesn't understand everything. And the only appropriate response is to say, consider. Consider. 
Look at me. Look at my life because of the pain and the sorrow that I have. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, weakness is the way. You see, a confessed weakness is the way actually through our sorrows. And you will never walk through them if you're not able to see that. To be able to voice your need to what is going on in the world. The sorrow in the world will bring us to the end of our ropes. Don't you know that? And the remaining need for healing that this world cannot bring. I love, some of you know I'm a little bit of a literature geek, but I love this line from um, The Lord of the Rings. I know it's an old movie, but hang with me on this. There's one point after the story is winding down, everything's kind of been finished, there's a, we're in the denouement, the falling action. This is what the wizard Gandalf uh, says. <laughs> he says, alas, there are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured. I fear it wait, maybe so with mine, says Frodo. You live long enough, the scars are going to be there. And there's just some wounds that time won't heal. The Bible tells us that. There's a day coming. There's a day coming quickly. There's a day coming soon where it will be made right. And that's where the psalmist takes us lastly. Where we sing thirdly, we voice our hope. Take a look with me at verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now that feels like when you read that, that feels like whiplash after what you've just read in verse 1 and 2. I mean, are you crying out here, David? Or are you, you know, fine with the steadfast love of God? And I would like to suggest to you that the two actually go together. That the two can exist together. You see, he is reminding himself of what he is banking in, what he is trusting in. Not his love to God, but God's love to him. Did you see that? But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. You see, the point is, is this, is that there is a whole class of sorrows and misery when you get that the other way around. When you think that the basis of your trust that the thing that you're trusting in to make things right, to meet you in your sorrows, is your love for God. There's a whole new set of sorrows that comes your way. Do you know why? I'll tell you, because your love for God is fickle, just like mine. It lasts about that long, doesn't it? You need something more solid, more rock bottom, more committed to you. And this text when it drops the word steadfast love or loving kindness or loving faithfulness, it's the Hebrew word chesed. And it's about covenantal love. Love that never stops. Love that never breaks. Love that goes to death and beyond. And what the psalmist is crying out is, is that that's what I'm considering. And I love it because you've got, how long, O oh Lord, will you abandon me? And I'm considering your steadfast love. And they go together. And you know what that means? That lament does not preclude hope. Cries of lament and sorrow and angst do not rule out real hope. 
And hope isn't the eradication of all doubt or sorrow. But for the Christian, hope is actually intimately woven in with sorrow. Because what are you hoping for? That the pain would be gone. That the sorrow would be gone. You see, the point is, is that the psalmist is saying, he looks back on the work of God, the idea of the salvation that he has already brought. And why? For the basis of that future kindness from him. Sorrow and praise go together. There can be hope in our lament. The counselor writer Dan Allender in his book, Cry of the Soul, uh, he writes this. I want you to read it. It's wonderful. The one who hears your lament and far more bears your lament against them, paradoxically, is someone you deeply and wildly trust. To sing a lament against God in worship reveals far, far greater trust than to sing a song about how happy we are and how much we trust Him. Lament cuts through insincerity, strips pretense, and reveals the raw nerve of trust that angrily approaches the throne of grace and then kneels in awed, robust wonder and hope. When my children are frustrated with me, that my life is not going the way that they want it to go. When they don't get the toys that they want. Do you know what they don't do? They don't run across the street and complain to my, their friend's parents. You know what they do instead? They come crying to me. Why? Because they know that I'm the only one that can fix it. And you know what that tells me about them? They trust me. That they know that I'm the only one that can fix it. And so they're the ones that are crying out to me. Not the neighbor's kids across the street. Not their parents. Do you know that about your lament? That when you bring it to God, however angry or tinged with rage it is, it is actually a profound a move of incredible trust. So where does that leave you tonight? When you think about the events of the past week, you think about your life, have you ever paused for a moment to just say, me and Jesus need to have a moment. And I'm going to close the door and we're going to have a screaming match. Because I just ache. How long, O oh Lord, I feel like you have abandoned me. And you've promised me you never would. You see... One of the things that I think that people read when they hear verse 4 and 5 and 6 is they think, yeah, but what if I don't feel like that when I sing it? What if I don't feel like that when I say it? I just want to ask you, what makes you think that David felt it? What, what makes you think that? You see, here's what you have to understand. The songs of lament not only express, they form and shape so that you have words when you don't feel things. That will actually work from the outside in to shape your hope. He says, I can't sing a song of hope. I don't feel like it. Who cares about your feelings? I mean, I don't mean it that roughly, of course. They're important. But they're not the last word on your experience. And so if you wait till you hope, you likely never will. So you'll be embraced by faith. Words of hope 
to say, I will trust in you, O Lord. And by doing so, your heart is now shaped. That's what music does. That's why you know your alma mater. You didn't know it in high school. It's because you've been singing it for four years that you know it. So when you begin to sing songs of lament, they shape you in this way. Our worship is always formative. That's why you ought to care about the words that you sing. And the point is, is this. In this song, we are given words to help shape our hope. That's what you need to see. We voice our hope even if we don't feel it in the hope that we one day will. That's the picture that we're given here. Well, I need to land the plane. And how am I going to do that? I want you to see this. That one day, that God, the, the one that God, the God that bottles up our tears, that's what Psalm 56, 8 tells us. He tells us He bottles up our tears. He counts every one of them. That that same God will one day wipe them all away. That is the promise that comes to us in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. If you have your Bible, go there. If you have your phone, go there. The last book of the Bible, I just want to read it because it's so beautiful. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 says this. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And I love this. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You see, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see the reason that we can sing that hope and have that promise is that because on the cross, Jesus Himself, Jesus Himself was actually, He didn't just have the words of the song, of a, the words of abandonment. He didn't just experience that, but He really, God really, really alienated Him. When He cries out, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? That was Jesus alone, apart from God's presence, real distance from his Father. And why? So that you and me could have his presence and have it forever. You see, God really did hide his face from the Son. He suffered ultimate cosmic alienation. Why? For you and me, what we deserved that we might have forever, as it says here, the face of God. The face of God is always God's presence. And when He died and rose again three days later, something else happened. Our last enemy. Our last enemy. That's what, that's what death is called in 1 Corinthians 15.26. The last enemy is death. That when that happened, it was dealt a decisive final blow. In other words, as it is put in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10. I'll just read this to you. Paul the Apostle writes this about what Jesus has done. It is wonderful and it's profoundly hopeful where he says this. Therefore, I endure... Excuse me, verse 10. It says this. He says, "...and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death." and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So now, the point is, is this, is that one day, you will know, again, as I've already said, not long from now, not long from now, all who look to Him will know and look through the sorrow of their lives, and you will say what the psalmist has said, that He has dealt bountifully with me. Until then, we sing our sorrows, brothers and sisters. We sing our sorrows to the one who counts our tears as precious. And death is dying. 
That's what Jesus came to do. Do you know that hope? If you don't, I want you to. You're going to die. You cannot avoid it. And there's a way to make it through death. We follow in the footsteps of our King who has done just that. And so that now when death touches you, and it will, it will be, as John Dunn says, one short sleep past and wake with thee eternally. It just ushers you into his presence. Do you have that hope? If you don't, I want to talk to you. Christ our King is coming again. He's coming again. Let's pray. How long, O Lord, will you forget us forever? How long will you hide your face from us? How long must we take counsel in our soul and have sorrow in our hearts all the day? How long shall our enemy be exalted over us? Maranatha, come quickly, O Lord. Wipe away our tears. Meet us in our sorrow. And give us a hope that looks beyond the grave, we pray tonight. Amen.